0: This is Veteran State of Mind. I'm your host, Geraint Jones. Welcome back, guys. Episode 101. We have Frank Ledridge back on the podcast with us today, uh, continuing our chat from the other day. Uh, he is the author of Small Wars, um, and as someone has been involved in those lost small wars, it was, uh, it was great to talk to Frank. Um, before we get back into the podcast, uh, I just want to say thank you to today's sponsor, me, Geraint Jones, Sexy Welshman. I write books. I've got audio books. If you have ears or eyes, then we might be a good match for each other. Uh, If you want to know more about Afghanistan, then there's my book, Brothers in Arms. Uh, If you want to know more about the Roman legions and uh, a bit of stabby in the face, then check out Legion or Ambush or Siege. Uh, And if you're interested in a bunch of other stuff uh, I've got <laughs> I got books on all kinds of stuff to be honest guys uh, it's all linked up in the show notes just click the link and it'll take you through uh, if you want a signed copy then you can get in touch with me as well um, by uh, just giving me a shout on social media uh, social media social media social media we'll get that sorted out for you on there uh, I write a lot better than I speak so uh, Yep, yeah, check out the books. Also, we got VSOM store, vsomstore.com, also in the show notes. Uh, if you want to get any of the Ali merch, we've got t shirts, hoodies, stickers. Um, still no wank socks, but we're working on that one. So, uh, anything you want there, guys, I do appreciate it. It does, help support, um, it does help support the podcast, covers the cost for the podcast, and all that kind of stuff. So, thank you, everyone that's been doing that. Don't want to mess around, guys. Want to get straight into today's podcast. So, please give a very warm welcome to Mr. Frank Ledwidge. Frank, welcome back to the podcast. Um, I have had my blood pressure checked by the nurse and I have been cleared to continue <laughs> after our last conversation. Um, I'll, obviously, I've told everyone in the introduction to go back and listen to part one, so we're going to just keep... We're going we're gonna to pick up where we left off. Um, so, British involvement in Afghanistan. A lot of people think that it began, obviously, with the paras, because everything starts with the paras, doesn't it? But um, it's um, it didn't, did it? Obviously, p- post 9-11, we had involvement in Iraq, uh, sorry, in, in, in Afghanistan. So w- what was that like? And,
1: and was it successful? If we look at it from the highest sort of view, the strategic view, I think the answer has to be yes. The objectives were achieved of clearing the Taliban out. Now, whether we should have gone in to do that in the first place, is a, is a is a I think, is a very good question. There are plenty of people who genuinely knew a lot about the country who felt we should not have gone in on the ground with boots in any kind of combat or occupying role. But look, put that aside. Everybody I've spoken, or most of the people I've spoken to who were there at the time said it was working because the mission was limited. The British element was in the north in a place called mazar sharif population there were pretty sympathetic to us. Kabul in the capital at the time tell me that there was optimism and very much a positive sense about the military presence there until 2003, which was, of course, the time when the poison of Iraq started. And that's where the the tension of the British military and strategic leadership shifted and Afghanistan very much became, as you well know, most people will know, the secondary theatre. And Iraq, for a few years anyway, until people, until it declined, became the main effort. And I think, you know, people people who lived there for years Around that time tell me that this was a Iraq for them was a major tragedy. They felt that things were genuinely getting better. The Taliban was gone. The Taliban didn't have anyone to fight, actually, especially in the south, which is their heartland. And things were going well. Once the eye turned away, the eye of our strategic leadership and the Americans turned away to Iraq, things changed fundamentally and got worse after that.
0: And it's—I I imagine there's a couple of reasons for that. One is because it wasn't getting the focus, um, but the other is because there is a connection throughout the Muslim world. The same, and, and I say the Muslim world in the sense of the the because um, the Middle East, obviously, and countries like. Afghanistan, in the same way that there's a connection with Western countries, you know, if so, if someone invaded Scandinavia, we'd pay a lot of attention to that in in Britain, even though we're not the same country. And that, so I think there's that kind of that double thing of on the one side, it's like, well, hang on, I thought you were helping us, and hang on, this was, I thought this was all about getting these terrorists that were responsible for nine eleven. Now, what you're doing in Iraq? Hang on a minute, maybe. Um, you know, we feel some kinship to those kind of people, and we don't really agree with what you're that's doing.
1: Certainly right. I mean, the Mus- you know Muslim people have something called the Ummah, which is the the people of Islam, and the people of Islam, are, you know, whatever you think about it, are all over the world. And there's a sort of fellow feeling. And you get that, you know, in other religions as well. You know, less less now than you used to, but that's why the Crusades were fought. You know, we fought the Crusades because Christians in the Middle East were being oppressed by Muslims there. You know, whether and you're from the the wilds of England or marshes of France, and you end up in the Middle East when you're fighting for for, for your co-religionists. And that's, I think, it's not an exact analogy, but certainly the Middle East is an element of that. So how did we
0: end up in Helmand in 2006? Because um, I don't know if there's any Al-Qaeda training camps down there,
1: was there? Well, there was one, I think, Uh, but that was knocked out in uh, 2000. Late two thousand and one, there were no Al Qaeda training camps.
0: So, so we've had no Al Qaeda training camps in Helmand for five years. So, what what are we doing down there in two
1: thousand six? Well, you see, the thing is that we were experts in counter counter, as well as counterinsurgency, of course, as we've discussed in here about Iraq. We we're also experts, and we took on the role of counter narcotics. And when Tony Blair was asked, or rather, when Tony Blair, yes, was asked to. Select the province where British soldiers should be sent in a conference in 2005. He said, we are going to take on the menace of narcotics, which is roughly 50 percent of the Afghan economy. And we're going to do it in Helmand, where the center of the narcotics trade is. So what happened then was that, as you would expect, recce teams were sent to Helmand. And there's some great stories. They're all true. I've heard them from multiple sources about this particular of these recce teams and people doing preparation before the bits got there. And one of them was led by General Messenger, who I think is now quite senior, just retired anyway, a capable officer. I think he was a colonel then. And I was talking to someone on that mission who said they they, uh, came to a particular village in Helmand and the elders took them in. As you know, you're welcomed in and this was before any of the fighting started and they sat there and drank tea. And at one point the interpreter turned to one of the soldiers and said, uh, they want to know where you're from. And the reply was, well, we're from England. We're from Britain. And the interpreter turned to the chief elder and there was some talk. The reply was, you've got five minutes to leave or we're going to kill you. So that's what I've just been told. So they had to mount up and off they went. And the reason for this was that whilst for us, Helmand is what was essentially unknown, Afghanistan was a place where the great game was played. For the people of Helmand, this was the fourth war against the British. The previous ones wrongly, actually, but they believe they won, and they don't see this as a great game. What they see the British as are a con- constantly ravaging army who have a habit of rampaging through, according to them, rampaging through the area, slaughtering, at raping, and burning as they go. That's the impression they have of the English. It was the, or the British. That's the single, it was this, as one person who knows a lot about this said to me, it was the single worst place on the planet with the possible exception of the Bogside in Derry in Northern Ireland where British soldiers could have could have been sent. It, 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 an extraordinary poor judgment. Another story, by the way, is a bit more amusing. Concerns some diffid and foreign office people who went, believe it or not, with films, uh, with projectors who would go to villages in Helmand and they'd project Blue Planet as a demonstration of you know Western civilization and what people could hope for. Now, projecting sea monsters onto the sides of buildings <laughs> in the Afghan desert may not be the best way of advertising your future military presence, but it was the way that was selected. Uh, there are some amazing stories from that period of, of naivety and frank stupidity. But anyway, however we got there, there we were in whenever it was... March or April of 2006 with the paras. Frank, I have a question.
0: Where the fuck would the British Army all of a sudden doing anti-narcotics operations on the other side of the world when we are already embroiled in a war in uh, Iraq? Well, uh, General Danat,
1: General Sir Richard Donat may have an answer to that. Uh, there was a big spat, which was very amusing when it happened, between the former British ambassador to Afghanistan and General Donat, who was head of the army. And The ambassador to Afghanistan accused the general of taking the view that because battalions were coming free from Iraq because we were drawing down, we must use those battalions or lose them. So in other words, what we have to do is have a much bigger presence than we would otherwise have because if we don't use these infantry troops, we might lose them in cuts. Danat said this was a complete lie and the two had... uh, quite an amusing argument on, on, uh, on the Today programme one morning, which I, I found quite extraordinary to listen to. But anyway, look, the, the, what a lot of people think is that the scale of the British involvement in Helmand, which was a full brigade, or at least a light brigade to start with, and then, of course, a full battle battle, full up brigade plus. The reason we had that level of presence was because we just want, needed to use the battalions to make sure that the government was clear that we needed them. That's, that's, that's the assertion.
0: I have my little theory on this, and my theory was we fucking knew Iraq was a disaster and we were trying to divert attention away from it with an easy win because we thought, yeah, yeah, we're saying, right, there's going to be some poppy farmers, they're going to kick off, we'll fucking slot them, no dramas, what is worse can happen. Uh, And I'll give you my evidence for this. You're a barrister, you can grade me on how good I'm doing on the old law stuff. Um, On one hand, we have Iraq in 2006. Um, By the way, people listening, I don't want anyone to think that what I'm doing now, I always have to say this, I hope you guys know me by now, I would never diminish the effort or the loss of anybody, right? Here's the facts. 2006-2007, twice the number of people were killed in Iraq than were killed in Afghanistan. I bet you didn't know that. The reason why you don't know it? Because you were made to think that all the fighting was going on in Afghanistan. Look at a company from that Free Power Battle group um, in that 2006 Military crosses, MIDs, VC, all over the place. And I dare say that every single one of those was well-earned and deserved. Then let's look at the uh, battle groups in Iraq. Maybe one MC for the entire battalion. and In, in heavier fighting, guys getting lost every week. And it's quite clearly because... They wanted one pages a war because it's like, ooh, it's good guys. For, hey, not only are these guys nasty Muslims, but they're drug-dealing Muslims. These are no real nasty ones. You don't want... Right, but we're over here doing a good thing. Don't worry about Iraq. Don't look at that. Look at this. Look at Afghanistan. It was like a bait and switch.
1: I think that's right. The way the way I put it, I think, in, in, in my book is um, that Helmand was designed to redeem the disaster of Iraq. It was to compensate for the obvious failure, especially in the eyes of the Americans. In Iraq we were going to do this right and of course it's even worse it turned out you can say that I think you can than uh, in
0: uh, Iraq. the Taliban right they were the Taliban they were a formidable force they had um, they had defeated the northern alliance who were the guys who defeated the soviets so you could to simplify things so you know these are a, a, this is a formidable fighting force did we underestimate them um in in Afghanistan
1: my belief is that we simply didn't understand the adversaries we had. There were two kinds of Taliban, at least. There's one that's the form body, if you can call them that, or organized insurgency called the Taliban. And they call them, in, in the Pashtun language, the Asli Taliban, which means the real Taliban. Now, those people have their leadership in Quetta, in Pakistan. And let's not forget the Pakistani role in all this. Uh, it's probably too much to talk about now. But the Pakistanis were front and center when it came to making sure that the provision, the, the Asli, the real Taliban, were properly supplied, provision supported with uh, logistics and intelligence, and indeed orders at times. So we have the Asli Taliban, the real Taliban. But then we've got the other groups who were fighting us. that We took to be Taliban, but weren't. There were the narco gangs. They were tribal groups. They were local militias. A few guys who decided to take up arms and for for religious or other reasons. And those were the people that, in the case of the first tour with the paras that they were fighting. In fact, what they were fighting there was militias formed of men who had been fired as bodyguards, six or seven hundred of them, to the governor that we had insisted be dismissed. So he had a militia of his own. They all became unemployed. They were taken on by other militia leaders. Those are most of the guys who are fighting the Paras in their first uh, in their first tour. We went into an ecology, a, a, an environment, we knew absolutely nothing at all. We didn't even know who our enemies were, but they knew who we were.
0: And look, I'm going to say something about the, the Taliban's enemy here. Everybody knows that I love the Paras. I think they're a great lot bunch of lads. I think they're a great unit. They are also probably the most up for a fight out of any unit you're going to find on the planet. They are not the... They are not the people to send in somewhere before bullets are flying because they will make bullets fly this is a bigger much bigger picture question I, I i don't believe the army i i think there should be some kind of units that specialize in peacekeeping i think the idea of sending um guys that train to sm- bayonet people in the face to send them to somewhere quiet i think is a terrible idea um and that's something aside but i think by sending the paras, you was you would look it was you're going they were going to find the fight
1: yeah, they were going to find a fight. Uh, their commander takes exception. Uh, Stuart Tootle to being to this, he says we didn't go looking for a fight at all, and that may be the case for him. But I think it's fair to say that the this particular battalion had, I'm sure people have read people's accounts of this. You know, they'd been frustrated in Iraq. They hadn't had uh, any any action or significant action there, and they are very, rightly so, a very aggressive bunch of people. And by the way, of course. As you said yourself, these people should should not be deployed in that role, a role which might require uh, some degree of uh, of restraint. You no, know, they're paratroopers for a reason, and the reason is to be to be deployed uh, and and essentially supported and hold their positions against all odds. And if they find themselves holding positions against all odds, which they did, they're probably in the wrong place in Yeah, so
0: let's talk about. The strategy, um, you know, like, Liz, I'm not going to tell this, like, I I already, my personal belief is that we lost Afghanistan from the beginning of the operation that was irredeemable. I'm going to put that out there so people know that that's the position I'm coming from because, let us, like you said, there is such a thing as confirmation bias, so I don't want people to think, like, that. that's how I feel. Those are my thoughts on it. Can you tell us about the the strategy of of how we went into, and, and something else as well, because you, you mentioned this on the last episode. How many actual pairs of boots of ground on How many boots on the ground did we actually have for Afghanistan? And what was the mission and, and what was the, the, the strategy?
1: So the first brigade that was deployed, which probably should not have been deployed, was 18, um, I think they're called 18, Air Mobile Brigade. Is that right? 16 Air Assault? 16 Air Assault. The, I'm very sorry. What a brain
0: fart. The first thing you've slipped up on today, Frank, so you can be forgiven one.
1: <laughs> 16 Air assault. And apparently they were the victim or, or the beneficiary, as maybe the case, probably the beneficiary in their the, the way they'd see it, of internal army politics, in that they'd just been formed as a brigade, and the idea was to advertise their skills and role. And needless to say, well, not needless to say, but at the time, I think the chief of the army, chief of the general staff uh, was General Mike Jackson, who was very keen that, that this was his creation, that they be shown to be useful. So they were essentially by nature, being airborne troops, a light brigade. About 3,000 were sent in. By the same token, you may remember in the last episode, we discussed the fact that in Iraq you can have 6,000 people in the town, but maybe, I think at one point, maybe 200 or so could actually function as troops on the ground, on patrol doing daily work. And the same was certainly the case with 16 air assault, because you have um, all the same duties to do as you would in Iraq, but very few people to do them. So your maneuver force was extremely small, same in Iraq, a few platoons. So what happened then was there was a, and this is still, it's astonishing how much, vitriol and hatred and hair pulling this still causes it's something that's called the charge up the valley some people call it so what happened was the initial plan was with your 3,000 people or a couple of hundred or 300 people that could actually go out of the or were available to take operational or be a maneuver force the initial plan was we do that in two places. We secure the capital of Lashkagar. We secure the second largest city. And these are quite big places, actually, as anybody knows or been there will know. And the area in between, which is quite a large area, actually. But it, it was a limited objective. The trouble was that these new militia or militia groups or insurgent groups had made their presence felt fighting so-called government officials who were, of course, other drugs lords themselves or, or, or uh, gang leaders who called themselves government officials in places such as Musakala, where you were, uh, Sangin, Gamsa, and various other places. And so the request was made, and it's not sure now who by whom, go and put British presences in these places and fight off these attackers. To which the response should have been, That's not the plan. That's not what we came here to do. We'll stick to the the plan. Now, you say it was impracticable from the start. There's a very good case for saying that. I would tend to agree. But at least it was a coherent plan. And that plan changed. And how it changed, as I said, is still a matter of huge controversy between all the senior officers who were involved, the five or six generals and brigadiers, who were involved in making that decision? They're all blaming each other for it, and I won't get into that. Whatever, the, whoever, whoever it was that made the decision, and whoever it was the career, whose career might be damaged, it was found out it was them that approved it. it. Doesn't matter now. Decision was made, and platoon houses were set up in places that realistically could not be defended and supplied and supported adequate to the task, which meant that all these extremely capable and brave troops who were sent out there were sent out on essentially including the Paras were sent out on hopeless missions, which resulted in vast numbers of ordnance or vast amounts of ordnance being spent, and the mission completely shifting from possibly a peacekeeping and a, a limited combat mission to a full scale war. Insofar as you have know, a full scale war with three thousand troops or a few hundred troops. And each one of those platoon bases found themselves beleaguered and besieged. And at one time or other, with a couple of exceptions, I think all of them came very close to falling. And you spoke last time with Liz about what would happen if one of their overladen helicopters got shot down. It was very interesting. That and what would have happened if uh, if uh, one of these patrol bases had been overrun, as one at least one came within a few rounds of helicopter gunfire from being uh, taken. Uh, 40 or 50 British soldiers killed or captured by the Taliban. What then? What then with your mission? And that's unfortunately the situation they found themselves in. They were all uh, lucky combinations, luck, skill, sheer courage.
0: So I worked on the book No Way Out with uh, Major Adam Jarrett, who commanded Easy Company up in uh, Musakala And essentially to get a casualty out of there, they had to level that town. Um, and, you know, we're, and I'm not talking a couple of gun runs. I am talking continuous fucking dropping of ordnance for all night. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: You are never going to recover the local population after you have done that to them.
1: Never. No, and, and the whole culture, you know, I speak speaking to a, one of the fast jet pilots who was involved at that time. Very thoughtful individual, actually. Really, really impressive. I really liked him. I can't say who it is, but he was very impressive. But even, you know, he said, he looked at me and he said, You know, we killed a lot of people at that time. And, uh, you know, I killed a lot of people. And his words were, I killed a lot of people, but I'm not sure how many of them should have been killed. And I thought that was quite striking because it represents the thoughts, I think, of a lot of people at that time. And it's not ultimately the responsibility does not lie with the people who were dropping the ordnance or on the GPMG or what have you. They were doing what they had to do. The responsibility for all those casualties on both sides, but especially on the Afghan side at that time, as you point out, lies with the leaders who committed those troops to impossible missions, and missions that were flagrantly and obviously impossible from the start. And without adequate objectives, Or thinking behind
0: them. Absolutely. If you are in a platoon house, you can't just let yourself get overrun and all your mates get killed. You know, you have to do what you have to do at that point. So nobody should feel bad about that if someone's listening and they are. That was not your fault. You were doing what you had to do. You couldn't let your fucking mates die. But let's let's say that every bomb dropped that summer, not one of them killed a civilian. Let's just pretend that would happen. And all it caused was material damage. In a country where people don't really have anything but their homes and their honour and their pride, just that alone would have been enough. Never mind the fact that they do have strong family family bonds and you've just made an enemy for life. Because again, we're not talking about people here who who forget easily. Most of most people listening right now are probably military connected. And I bet not all of you know about all the Afghan wars and you're in the military. You go around and ask people in the streets in Britain about Afghanistan, they don't have a fucking clue. But the Afghans do, and you know it's like they 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 were like you said they were looking at us some from suspicion from the beginning. And you go, I know what'll win them over. Let's bomb the town. You don't have to be a genius.
1: Yeah, and again, you know if you're if you're in one of these little towns somewhere and you've got you've got nothing, and except a little bit of knowledge of your own history, which right or wrong doesn't matter. That's what they understand. And then suddenly, a bunch of blokes in brown uniforms show up. And then whoever it was that's fighting them, they show up as well. Everything's levelled, as you say. And even if if nobody nobody is killed, you're thinking, what the fuck was that all about? And the answer is, well, it must be those Russians again, because because nobody's going to tell them who, who, who it is necessarily. Um, if it's uh, if you know the Russians were there twenty years ago, and then of course they find out suddenly it's the British. The British, the British are back after all they've done to us, and. Let's not forget as well, you know, you mentioned 9-11. Uh, I mentioned 9-11. Nobody in Helmand, which is absolute, to be quite frankly, our end of nowhere in terms of <laughs> we can even call it current affairs. Most people in Helmand, surveys showed, and quite reliable surveys compared with the surveys we've had, recent political surveys, I think something like 60 or 70 percent, and it might be more of Helmandis, have never heard of 9-11. And a friend of mine- Why would they? Hey, how would you? What's it got, got to do with them? Yeah. And I, I remember a friend telling me who'd spoken with some people who hadn't heard of 9-11, and, and the conversation went something like this. So what's this 9-11 then? Where was that? Or, you know, whatever whatever term is used, nine eleven or attacks on New York. Where's where's this New York? Oh, New York's a town. Where, where, which valley is New York in? Oh well, it's, it's, it's thousands of miles away, or a very it's other side of the world. And um, what happened in this New York town then? Well, some aeroplanes drove into some buildings. Right, but aeroplanes are always bom- bombing buildings here. What what's the what's the deal? Ah, well, yeah, but th- who who did it? Well, a bunch of Arabs. Well, we hate Arabs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, But by the way, they're no fonder of Arabs than they are of Westerners, and considerably maybe yeah. a bit fonder than they are of Brits. But no, as anybody knows, Pashtuns of Helmand, they're not especially fond of any foreigners. But certainly not Arabs. So let me get this straight then. You, British, or whoever you are, are here because some planes ran into a village, ran into a town, a long way off, and these planes were driven or fl- flown by, by Arabs. What the hell has that got to do with us? And we never got that across. And I think, by the way, it's, it, it wasn't 60%. I think I'll have to look it up. But it's, it's 90%. I think if Helmandis had not heard of 9-11, why would you? Yeah.
0: And then on top, on, the, on top of that, Frank, and it's like, um, oh, and by the way, because of that, we're now going to slash your poppy crop too.
1: Yeah, and we're going to take your income away as well. And uh, and the money for the winter, so you can't heat your houses. And uh, uh, and by the way, those night raids, which are killing your kids and, uh, and, and, and dishonouring everybody, they're going to go on as well because we're protecting yeah. you.
0: Now, I don't think either you or I are saying that there aren't people in the Taliban that needed killing. because
1: No, loads of people needed killing. A whole lot of them needed to go. But we weren't necessarily fighting the Taliban.
0: Right. And that's part, that's part of it. And the other part is I'm a big believer in get one job done first before you start the other one. So if if that was the plan, you know what? The Taliban have been there. They're not going anywhere. Let's finish Iraq and then let's let's go over and do it properly. But with, I suppose, look at 2009. I don't think anybody saw 2009 come in in Afghanistan. Do you think that that is a fair assessment? And would we have got involved in Helmand had we known what it would turn into?
1: It would have to be crazy to, to, to have... Uh to have done that. But again, we were crazy. There were no, there were no mitigation, mitigating plans or strategies. There, were no, there was no idea of what it was we were trying to achieve, which we'd call a strategy, and the ends and means required to achieve it. Uh, and, of course, when the facts changed, as it fundamentally did on the ground, there was no reassessment of what lame-minded objectives still existed. And, of course, we had not the ability, means, or thinking to be able to achieve those objectives anyway of course not who would do that you would be crazy we stuck. what happened was we kicked the door down flung some petrol around lit a fire and then and then hoped for the best and in the end it was the american marines that tried to that, that, that had to come in as they did in basra and bail us out again and in another military disgrace and that's the thing that gets me this happened twice we went in with pride and belief in ourselves as the experts in this and the experts in culture and in counterinsurgency and in, and in defeating the Dushman and the great game. And on both occasions, we were seen off, and on both occasions, the Americans had to spend life and blood to bail us out. You now, just in this great game business.
0: Just explain to people what that is, Frank, the great game.
1: The great game is, is a term given to the activities carried out over about a century during the time of the British Empire. And it involved spies and spooks and adventurers and occasional invasions. And the idea was to keep the Russians out of Afghanistan because it was felt if the Russians came to Afghanistan, they might be able to threaten India. And this went on for 100 years and was very swashbuckling. If any, you might see films, about some old films about it. And, you know, there's all these ideas of Kipling, Rudyard Kipling and all that, that kind of thing. So it's very swashbuckling. Adventurous imperial legends is what it is. Now, most people would say actually, the Russians had never an intention at that time or the capability to invade Afghanistan and threaten India, which they probably didn't. Doesn't matter. That's what we were doing. And it's 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 uh, some of you may have seen the film Carry On Up the Khyber, which basically it's a very funny film from the seventies. I'm, I'm not sure you could show it now for about fifty different reasons, but uh, if you can get hold of it on YouTube or something, you know. Do so. It's very, very funny. Even now, sort of, <laughs> a year or so ago again. Yeah. But the idea was, we were doing this again. You know, the Brits were going to come in. We had a special understanding of the area. We had a special understanding of the country, don't you know? And we're we the chaps to, to once again to be able to 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 just outthink our you know the, the you know the, the, the Pakistanis and the, the, the Afghans. And, you know, I heard one senior army officer talk about the Afghan. He said, the Afghan is a chap who who, who, who who always treats his guests well, which, is of course, is true, but there isn't one Afghan, is there? There are 34 million Afghans. Anyhow, so this idea of the great game involves all these old legends. So when I was in Afghanistan, I was with the Foreign Office uh, Mission, they were, you know, all very well-meaning and what have you, and we were stuck down in, in Helmand with everyone else in the PRT. And that was just our job and, you know, we were well paid for it and lived very comfortably. Um, Our colleagues at one point in Kabul decided to have a a great game party, themed party. And that's the way, you know, all too often the strategic leadership saw this as some sort of throwback to the old days. That's also how the Afghans saw it. But they don't see this as some sort of jolly competition or uh you know replay of glamorous nineteenth century wars, they see us as as a real rampaging enemy. Now that is understandable in the nineteenth century, but not so now. And we never understood that. And furthermore, we were the main you know, we've got Trafalgar, you know, these legends of the Battle of Britain or the Battle of Waterloo, or Agincourt or the whatever whatever you like. Every nation has its national myth. The Afghan national myth concerns a battle called Maiwand. Now, Maiwand is about 10 miles or 10 kilometers from Gereshk, which is the second biggest city in the province of Helmand in southern Afghanistan. So you have this battlefield. And who fought the battle? The Afghan army and the British army. And the Afghan army defeated that particular British army. That's their Trafalgar. It's their Waterloo. It's their Agincourt. It's their Battle of Britain. And it was fought against us in 1880. And they won. Now, we defeated them afterwards but they forget that. But that's the way they look at us. It's not as some sort of glamorous rival.
0: Yeah, that to me again, there's nothing fucking glamorous rival if you're on the ground looking for IEDs, I'll tell you that. No. Um or you're walking around in fields of fucking shit and you know, and you're worried about your fucking seeing a mate's legs get ripped off. And and I just want to fucking strangle anyone that was involved in that kind of side of things. I think it's fair to say that in Iraq and Afghanistan, we were holding on by the skin of our teeth. You know, we, had, we didn't have enough troops to do the job. And one of the things I've not been able to get my head around is we continued this thing of the six-month rotation. We had troops in the UK. We had troops in Germany. Commit troops to get the job done or don't do the job. Yeah. If, if if you if you can't if because I can understand saying well we can't pull the troops from Britain and Germany because then that leaves us open in Europe fine then let's not go and fuck around in Afghanistan
1: I agree um, and you say get the job done what job is this because the job yes exactly the job ultimately I mean, we, we, we there were some some local objectives uh, but the job was by the end we were irrelevant to whatever job it was because the job was set by the Americans and the timeline was set by them. And our Viet voice was completely irrelevant there and com- wasn't even spoken, let alone heard. Uh, so we ended up as America's little helper there, which we were, of course, in Iraq, which we haven't discussed. Obviously, there's plenty in that. And we ended up as a subordinate auxiliary unit to the U.S. Army and Marines, which, of course, is, is exactly what you, you know we, was always going to happen. Since we'd started a job, we could not finish or didn't even know what the job was.
0: I used to think of us as America's little brother in these fights, but to be honest, now I see them as the parent and us as a child.
1: Absolutely, I agree with that. Yeah, they're the mentor now, and we're the we're the learner. And that, there is that there is that. I think that psych, psychological bridge was crossed from little brother to uh, master servant, if you like. You know, in the later later reaches of Iraq, I think that's the historical significance of that. It's far greater than just charge of the knights and the Americans or parts of the American army bailing us out. It's far greater than that. It's that point where we shifted from equal to subordinate, small but capable equal to subordinate.
0: And even operationally equal, we couldn't get anything done without the Americans. We had to have American air power. We needed American helicopters. We needed American supply chain. You know, we needed, even, we couldn't, even this tiny scale of operation that Iraq, well, uh, Afghanistan was, we couldn't do on our own.
1: Now, here's a couple of figures. Uh, let me see if I can, if you, you, may, you may know the answer to this. So, so how much do you think would it cost to deliver a gallon of fuel to your forward patrol base? I have no idea. $400 is the, is, the, is the answer. So it costs $400 for one gallon of fuel to get to a patrol base. Now, part of that cost is getting it to Karachi, up through the mountains or what have you, but also part of it is bribing the local militias to make sure that that gallon of fuel isn't captured, burnt and sold by the Taliban. The best way to do that is to hire Taliban people to guard it. So that's what was being done. I'm not joking. It is not an exaggeration. The Americans or American supply and logistics officers were in the business of paying security companies, as you can imagine what they were like and who they were involved with, to get this stuff through the Kyber Pass, because most of it came over land and to where you and everybody else were based. And that's where, you know, part of that $400 was paying the Taliban i repeat that, pay, paying the Taliban to secure it so it got to where you are safely so that you could drive around in your truck and try and try and kill the Taliban. That's how mad it was. And that's, that's a very straightforward mad story. Right.
0: There's a lot to go into in this stuff. I could talk about this all day, but like, we've got to, obviously we have to draw this to a conclusion at some point. Um, in your opinion... Was Iraq and Afghanistan, those wars, was it the last gasp of the British Empire?
1: No, unfortunately, I don't think so. I think the last gasp of the British... You know, we talked before about, uh, about aspirations and self-image. And in a sense, that, that's a thread that's run through both of our conversations. But look what's happening next March. We've got an aircraft carrier with four or five British aircraft and 15 American aircraft on it that's going to go escorted partly by British ships, partly by American ships into the South China Sea on a mission to develop an Indo-Pac- uh, Indo-Pacific strategy or to, 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 to further and um, fulfil the initial stages of this strategy. So I'll ask you, what on earth are we doing with our very limited navy for whatever has been said recently about defense rises and that's not going to take effect on the early 30s playing around in China's backyard that that's a to me that is got if that goes wrong that will make Iraq and Afghanistan look like a game in the park
0: it's just ego isn't it i think it's like a national ego at this point
1: look we have got adversaries and they're very serious adversaries and we need to deal with them i would suggest that we adopt a strategic approach that does not involve interfering in the very far abroad, that ensures we can defend our allies and friends, and we do have allies and friends, particularly in Europe, when when our obligations demand that we do so. And we do not develop a strategy that involves antagonising vast powers. It's fine to antagonise vast powers and oppose them. If you, A, they're in a position to threaten you, and B, of course, if you're in a real position to threaten them, and we are not, with our carrier, with its poultry number of aircraft, such aircraft as it has, the only weapon they've got are American mainly. Um, We need a serious rethink, just as we need a serious rethink about, a radical rethink about how we look at defence as a whole. You know, people like me who talk like this, and plenty of us, believe in a strong defence. But that requires an understanding as to what the threats are and whether we can deal with those threats. And it's the same problem of thinking. You talked about getting the job done. What is the job? Ultimately, the job is defence of the homeland. And that's what we should focus on. And the homeland is in the northwest, Atlantic, or northwest Europe on the eastern shores of the Atlantic. That's what we're good at. and that w- That's what we should focus on doing.
0: I'm a bit of a history buff, so I'm always wondering what the person in my position will be reading and thinking about in 50 years' time from now. Do you think Iraq and Afghanistan will go down as military disasters?
1: Yes, I do. I think they'll, they'll, be, they'll go down along with Suez and Singapore, Singapore was the biggest defeat we had in the Second World War. And in terms of scale, you can't compare them. We lost 70,000 people, prisoners and killed, mostly prisoners in Singapore, and armed, you know, armed forces personnel. I mean, you know, you've had people on your own show, which are involved in these massive battles in the Second World War and even the Falklands and what have you, which are essentially successful. Um, but Singapore was a massive strategic defeat. That's the point. It was a strategic defeat and it ended our, it ended our aspirations and essentially our aspirations and capabilities in, East Asia effectively. Suez put the in 1956 when we tried to invade Egypt and the Americans wouldn't support us, so we had to pull out. That's what happened then. That was another major embarrassment. But I think the 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 Iraq and Helmand peace, taken together as a strategic piece, which I think they are from our for our purposes, will be seen as the point when our imperial ambitions were shown to be vapid empty and the problem is they may have been shown to be empty but it may well be in the not too distant future that someone else will really put the top hat on that and what that doesn't i hope and pray does not mean that it's dead british servicemen in some war that does not involve us in service to the united states to no purpose for our for our our, of our british defense And unfortunately, I can see that happening. But to answer your question, yes, I think taken together, they are a major defeat.
0: And um, I think, you well, you kind of answered this question there, but it doesn't sound like it's one that we've learned from at the top levels.
1: I don't think we have at all. And I think the reason for that is the people who, honestly, I think the people who realize this have now left the service by and large. And those who have stayed in, particularly those very uh, numerous upper ranks, Uh, are willing to bide their time and say what needs to be said and restrain their criticism because being a maverick or a naysayer, as they might call it, or a free thinker, as others might call it, is not welcomed in the senior ranks where creativity really should be one of the features of successful, and is one of the features of successful generals, I mean, successful combat generals. We don't have that kind of journal.
0: Frank, I want to thank you for writing this book, Losing Small Wars. Um, I've, I've, it's one of the books, I revisit it. Like I said, it helped me put a lot of my thoughts into some kind of like, it, it gave them the bigger picture context, which helped me a lot when dealing with PTSD. And I, and I really recommend it. It's not the kind of book that people would think necessarily that reading would help them in that kind of side of things. But I think a lot of us know what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that is a big part of why we feel so much anger and things towards it. And and so I recommend anyone buy the book. Uh, I'll let everybody know. I'll record an outro separately and I'll let everybody know where they they can find it. But my final question for you is, is um, how did you feel when writing the book and how do you feel about it now? And, and what's your kind of, your hopes for it?
1: Well, I wrote it, the, the first edition was written in 2011. And when I was writing it, I was quite worried, actually. I was worried I might be seen as letting the side down or, uh, you know, being seen as defeatist. And, so I sent it to some friends, and one of them was a senior officer in the SAS. And he sent it to some of his friends, and um, and I said, you know, one of one of my mentors writing this was a was a, a brigadier, a guy called Richard Iron. It's a wonderful man, actually. He was a, one of the mentor. He was one of the um, officers who mentored the successful brigade in the charge of the Knights Iraqi Army Brigade, and they made it very clear to me that this was not a defeatist work, it was what realist, so it put, put my mind at rest. So to answer the question, you know, I was worried about writing it. Second edition was 2017 when we'd also done Libya, uh, which I was also involved in because I'm a complete idiot and fool and never learn, and um, uh, I, I was in no doubt then that, that yeah, it, I think most most people in the armed forces see, see, see things pretty much as I and you do. Uh, I didn't have a concern about that, but I'm very, it's it's very nice that it's been received that way. And I do hope it helps people to put things in context and and perhaps make them understand podcasts like yours. There aren't many like yours really, which are realist. um, Can make veterans understand they're not alone, particularly people who've been out for a while and, Aren't around people who are interested in what they've done or don't understand it, and that they're not alone, and that they are right in their doubts, and looking forward, they may have a voice in, you know, if things go wrong again.
0: Frank, I really enjoyed this conversation and this episode and the last one. Thank you so much for it. Is there any uh, any parting words you'd like to uh, leave our noble listeners with?
1: Yeah, there is actually. Well, it's 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 wonderful to talk like this because. You know, when you're out of the service, I've been out a long time, and I think everybody who's listening to this knows that whatever the nuances or disagreements people have, that that we do have experiences and ways that are different from other people, even reservists like me. And so it's nice to be able, very nice, and I'm very thankful to be able to have unloaded a bit over the last two episodes. On, on these topics with people who share my cares and concerns and language even to some extent, um, being, I was, you know, I was, as I say, I was a reservist and most of my combat experience and so far as you can call it that was a long time ago, um, or, or operational experience, but I'm very grateful. And that's it. That's, that's, that's the view I take.
0: Guys, thank you for listening to today's podcast. Uh, Frank, thank you for coming on. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation in some ways, but I'll be honest, it's quite hard listening um, and having that conversation in other ways as well. So I know there might be guys out there listening that are very wound up after today's podcast. Um, just remember that you went out there with pure, you know, pure heart, pure of intention. So did the lads that didn't come back uh, and you went out there to do a job that you loved. So keep that in mind. At the same time, let's not let these people off the hook for what they're doing. When there's when uh, when there's when there's gross incompetence going on that there is, we need to call it out. And I think as veterans, we shouldn't just shrug our shoulders and say, you know what, it's done, it's over with, because there's going to be another war. There's always other wars. Um, so let's do what we can to hold people accountable. And we'll talk more about that in the future. I'm still working out how that's going to be, but um, it's not going to be hanging people from lampposts, so you don't have to worry about that. But... But you know, but seriously, guys, you know, we love the Army. I'm sure any of us listening to this loved our time in the Army, was very grateful for our time in the Army and we want the Army to be the best that it can be. Um, and I think that you know we are the elderly uncles to the Army now, and we need to we need to figure out how how we can get this advice in there that we can avoid these similar mistakes in the future because unfortunately, mistakes in the military are paid for in blood um so we'll uh we'll come back to more on that um i just want to say yeah big thank you to frank big thank you to you guys for listening if you enjoyed today's episode or if you thought today's episode was important which i'm sure you will please make a post please spread the word please tell a friend um like like i said this gives a lot of context to um, what we went through in Iraq and Afghanistan in particular but also just in the military at large uh, guys thank you so much I'll catch you next time love you bye you told me not to worry and you wouldn't break my heart you told me you were sorry yeah my whole world fell apart you said it's not my fault and yeah I've never done you wrong I'm grinding to a halt, now I can see you're moving on I promised I'd get better and I told you things would change you keep me to the gutter yeah I'll never be the same I've got to let you go now live your life and spread your wings and yeah you put on quite a show and pull the puppet strings and are you sure that you don't want me? Remember all the pain, or maybe you should thank me, it's your loss and my gain. I'm leaving now forever I won't hang my head in the shame, but yeah you've taken me for granted and you should feel ashamed. You sold a dream to all of us, a dream that we'd all die for, a reason for us all to live and something we could fight for. I might just help a man up to his feet or hold a new bomb, but no matter what I do my hands remember remembering my rifle, yeah. Life's hard, I know that, still wouldn't change shit, I wouldn't go back, yeah, I wouldn't go back. Feel I hold that memories fade, yeah, they go fast. yeah, they go fast. Good times to come and go, survive the highs and lows, just take it step by step, I guess yeah, I suppose. Good times to come and go, survive the highs and lows, just take it step by step, I guess yeah, I suppose.